ran it on QI a few years ago. Yeah. Um, which was, there's no such thing as a fish. Yeah, there's no such thing as a fish. No, seriously, it's in the Oxford Dictionary of Underwater Life. It says it right there, first paragraph, no such thing as a fish. <laughs> Welcome to another edition of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with three other QI elves, James Harkin, Anna Chizinski, and Andy Murray. And once again, we've gathered round the microphones to share our favorite facts from the last seven days. So, in no particular order, here we go. James. Begin with you. Okay, yeah. My uh, fact this week is it was fashionable in New York at the end of the 19th century for ladies to wear live lizards as brooches. Wow. Nice. Yeah. With a pin on them? Well, actually with a small leash, it seems. This was in um, an article in the archive of the New York Times about the RSPCA um, complaining about it. Unsurprising. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> let me read you a, a few little bits. The lizards have been sold as chameleons. They were fastened to cushions by means of tiny collars and chains, and they have become quite a plaything with many people. Sometimes they were worn in the streets by women who had them attached to their bodices. Oh. It doesn't really give any more information than that. And was this popular? Was it? Did a lot of people do it? I imagine it didn't last for very long because <laughs> the RSPCA <laughs> and the New York Times got involved. Are there any other animals that we've yes. known to have worn? Yes, which really recently, maybe you saw this as well, and I don't really know why I don't remember this. Apparently in 2006, there was a fashion designer who designed cockroach brooches. I think mainly because of the rhyming thing, but they became quite a popular thing. And there was a live cockroach on a brooch. And so they were decorated with like ornate jewellery and painted gold and stuff. And apparently they could last up to a year. Um, and they just crawl around you. So I think Paris Hilton got one. Women used to keep their uh, small pets in their muffs. They would decorate their muffs with jewels and um, they would put pets in there. And some, for a while it was like a status symbol. The larger your muff was, the more rich you were. Really? So if you, if you get like a horse in there, a 16-hander, then, you know, that's <laughs> impressive. People are going, she must be a princess or something. <laughs> if she has a muff that fits a horse in, people would be impressed, okay. yes. There was another live animal that people use. Uh, apparently in the Middle Ages, one recommended cure for the plague was strapping a live chicken around the buboes on your body. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. That work? Nope. Right. No, no. That's why a third of Europe died. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I find that amazing. They used to think that if you got bitten by a, by a snake, that if you um, put a live pigeon on the bite really? at the bottom of a pigeon, it yeah. would suck out the uh, venom. That's right. Yeah, and you would you would consistently use more and more pigeons until the final anus-sucking pigeon didn't die, and then you knew you got the poison out. I have a very dim memory of people in China a thousand or so years ago keeping something, a little insect, in a cage around their necks. Okay. Which had drunk their lover's blood. Yeah, that would happen in yeah. Europe uh, with fleas. Fleas, that's yeah. it. But I can't imagine a cage small enough to keep a flea in and stop it from escaping. There's a poem by John Donne called yes, The Flea, which exactly. is talking about how, you know, the flea's bitten her, now it's bitten him, and he's saying, oh, isn't that romantic? You know, it's got, it's got both of us mingled in it. Oh. Yeah, Ouch. It's a good poem. They all died of the plague soon after that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't caused by rats, again, right? I know right. this always comes around. Well, just on that subject of yeah. rats and you know us wearing lizards, um, there's a nice little mouse that we've been giving back to, uh, which is a mouse that's going kind of... It's on the endangered list. Um, and all the used balls from Wimbledon have been donated as little houses for these mice. That's very nice. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, Eurasian harvest mice. That's it. Yeah, yeah, it's so wow. sweet. We'll put, we should put a picture up on the website of them in these little homes. I thought you were going to say the reverse of the lizard thing. There's an animal that's been wearing a human <laughs> in some way. Is that what horses claim they're doing? <laughs> <laughs> my great accessory, guys. Yeah, the fashion for humans in tight trousers and long boots remains. <laughs> I do really like the origin of, um, of fashions that are quite normal, though. Like, I didn't know, do you know how people used to wear wigs from the 17th century until no. the 19th oh. century? That was because Louis XIII had male pattern baldness, and so he insisted on wearing wigs all the time to conceal that. They used to wear really massive wigs, didn't they? Like, yeah. really ridiculous with things in the wigs, like a ship in full sail or a windmill with farm animals around it and this massive wig. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they would, if there was something would happen in the, in the news, they would wear a wig which reflected what was happening in the news at the time. Time. Mm. No. Yeah. And also, they were quite expensive, these wigs. Like, if you got a really good one, they were, they were really status symbols. And um, wig theft became a bit of a problem. <laughs> and, um, what they would have is you would walk across, if you were a thief, you'd walk across with a, a basket, and there'd be a young child inside the basket, and then you would distract him for some reason, and the child would pop out, grab the wig, pop back in into the basket and you'd run off. Oh, how many wow. of those awkward moments were there from cartoons where the children grabbed someone's hair and it turned out not to be a wig? <laughs> and then... And people going, that's definitely my mate's Hindenburg crash that you're wearing <laughs> on your head. <laughs> While we're on wig theft, someone... A lot of people in the 1910s and 1920s, there were bans on people bobbing their hair, whether that was locally oh. enforced. There weren't any governmental bans on it, but it was very discouraged. It was seen as being far too racy. And at least one girl blamed her haircut on what they called Jack the Clipper, as in, someone someone just leaned out and chopped my hair, so a girl in the Bronx said that a highwayman had grabbed her and cut her hair off. That sounds like someone <laughs> where they thought of the name of the criminal yeah. before. <laughs> uh, just speaking of things that are banned, one of my all-time favourite QI facts, this is just a sentence. In 1367, the French king, Charles V, prohibited the wearing of shoes shaped like penises. <laughs> Presumably because they were uncomfortable. (laughs) What happened was they would the front of the uh, shoe would go very long, and then they got longer and longer and longer, and then they got more sticky uppy and more sticky uppy because it became more fashionable, and then people thought, oh, something long and sticky uppy. Why don't we make it into a penis? And they did that, and then they had to ban it. It's just one of my all-time favourite facts. Lady Gaga would not have fit in in that (laughs) court. Time for fact number two. This one's mine. My fact this week is that the great codebreaker, Alan Turing, lost his buried treasure when he couldn't crack his own code. So, Alan Turing, um, for those, I guess, who don't quite know who he is... Yeah, he he is a great mathematician and codebreaker from Bletchley Park. He was very instrumental in helping to crack things like the Enigma codes. And isn't he the... He's known as the father of modern computing. Yeah. The Turing test. The Turing test is named after him. Yeah, so this is what happened. This was in 1940. Alan Turing got really scared of a potential German invasion. So he converted all of his life savings into two bars of silver which at the time were worth about 250 pounds. He wheeled them to some woods near Shenley, uh, and he buried them both uh, under the forest floor, one of them under the forest floor, one under a bridge uh, by a bed of a stream. He then made a code of where he buried it, and then he made a code of the code. And no one knows exactly how many codes of the codes of the codes that he made, but he made a number so Do that no one... Do we have the codes? No. Because I imagine it would be X marks the spot, X equals Y. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
so five years later, he returns with a metal detector in hand, and he goes to where he buried them, and he couldn't crack his own codes. And he kept trying and kept trying and kept trying. He did three expeditions to try and find his buried treasure, and each time he couldn't do it. And on top of it, in those five years, the landscape had changed. Someone had knocked down the bridge where he put it near the bed of the stream. And so he never found it. And so... That's Unless someone so has tragic. found it and not told anyone about it, Alan yeah. Turing's silver hoard is still buried somewhere in Shenley. But we don't know what his code was, do we? It was probably no. like, yeah, look at this bridge, and there's a poppy field to your left. And oh, I think I- the man who helped crack the Enigma code probably is something a bit more complex. <laughs> yeah. than I don't know. four hops towards the it left when you reach the big It was tree. a double bluff. <laughs> <laughs> Three roly-polies forward. <laughs> so simple, it's complicated. That's actually also how he cracked the Enigma code in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> so do you know who if you find treasure in the UK do you know who you report it to the local oh. coroner wow okay. so all he does is uh, gets dead bodies and treasure reported to him you know what you'd be hoping for don't you yeah <laughs> <laughs> in France you can't metal detect without a license to do so Really? They're much stricter on it than we are. So I don't know whether that means there's much more buried treasure in France just because there aren't enthusiastic amateurs going around the country and just seeing what they can yeah, find. Yeah, because something like 90% of treasure in the UK is found by people with metal detectors, just amateurs, I think. Yeah. Do you know yeah. how many coins you have to find for it to qualify as like a hoard? You know, like he's just like a real Ooh. hoarder. He's got a hoard uh, of coins. 100. I reckon not many. I reckon 20. Yeah, it's two. Two. As long two as, is a hoard. As long as they're at least 10% um, precious metal. Oh, wait, wait. Well, two I've got, coins. I've got several hoards in my wallet then. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, they have to be 300 years old at least, sorry. I'm very thrifty, so... And uh... <laughs> <laughs> very old. <laughs> so are you, al- are you allowed to keep a coin, but you're not allowed to keep a hoard? You then have to ring yes. the coroner. Yes. Couldn't you just say, oh, I found a coin, then, you know, walk away for a bit, then walk back. Oh, another coin. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, nice. That is such what a great a, idea. What a happy accident. Yeah. I found a coin 50 times. <laughs> They're going to have to rewrite the law, aren't they, now? <laughs> There's a great story of a book that was published in 1979 in England. It was kind of the world's first global treasure hunt, and it was a book called The Masquerade by Kit Williams. It's only about 20 pages, and it's all illustrations. And the story doesn't really matter. It's the fact that in every single page, there's hidden codes to the location of what the boy finds at the end of the storybook, which is this golden masquerade yeah. hair. And Kit Williams buried it somewhere in the world. He didn't say where. And it's if you crack the code of the book, you would find the masquerade hair. And did anyone book. find it? Someone eventually did, but it really, um, it really made people go insane mm. in the search for it because they became obsessed with it. And they, it, was in, it was a really, really hard code to crack. Um, wow. People actually were um, sectioned for psychiatric help because right. they were so obsessed and they were... They were just, uh, yeah, yeah, not getting to it. And unfortunately, the code was cracked by a couple, and they wrote the letter to Kit Williams to say that we'd found it. And the day before that letter had arrived, a neighboring person came to the house and said, Kit, I've got the answer. I know where it is. And then uh, dug it up. Oh, no. But they were told by one of Kit Williams' friends the location, so they cheated in order oh, to get no. it. Oh, bastard. So he told his friends the location. That's Somehow, a real like, he error. must have slipped in the pub or something. I don't know what it was. Ah, oh, damn it. Yeah. The person who did find it um, then tried to replicate the experience with a computer game, but um, it became so expensive to make it, and no one understood it once it came out that the company went bankrupt and he had to put the masquerade hair itself up for auction. It went up for auction in Sotheby's. It was bought by an anonymous bidder and since it was bought 30-something-odd years ago, 
no one knows its location currently. Ooh. Yeah, so it's still out Exciting. there. Exciting. Yeah. Get the car in there. Yeah. <laughs> Just talking about lost things. Mm-hmm. People always lose their PIN codes on their credit cards and whatever. That happens all the time. And um, I saw an article in The Independent from 1996 which thought that in the future, instead of PIN codes, people would use their fingerprints. Um, to say who they are when they put their uh, credit card in. People obviously a little bit a little bit worried about whether that would work or not, and so um, they managed to stop any worry by saying a similar program in South Africa, which distributes payments to 450,000 pensioners, has resulted in only one attempt to use an amputated finger in more than six years. <laughs> so that sounds pretty safe. Wow. <laughs> That's just the one they found out about, presumably. I mean, how many people with amputated fingers are there buried in someone's it's dungeon? True. When they had the when they had the lineup, they were like, "Point to the guy who did this." <laughs> <laughs> okay, time for fact number three, and uh, we're going to do you, Anna. Uh, yeah, my fact is that in 2011, the largest sperm bank in the world stopped accepting sperm from redheads. Um, they had why? too much. Uh... Well, you know, it was a supply and demand issue. I think uh, the, it was it was Cryos International Sperm Bank in Denmark. Um, I think Denmark calls itself the sperm capital of the world um, because there is <laughs> that yeah, when you arrive at the airport. The, yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're very proud of Everyone it. Everyone in Denmark, whenever they answer the phone, has to say, "Welcome to Denmark, sperm capital of the world." That's true. <laughs> so it was a sperm bank capital. Sperm bank capital, yeah, I don't think they just have really well endowed men. I actually men. use a sperm building society. I think it's more ethical. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lovely fact of uh, just the idea of having that logo on at the airport uh, that in Scotland they spent, the tourism board spent hundreds of thousands of pounds trying to re-find a great slogan to arrive to for all of Scotland. And after brainstorms that lasted for however long, hundreds of thousands of pounds, they arrived at Welcome to Scotland. That's <laughs> <laughs> the oldies of the goodies, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, sorry, Anna, go on. Yeah, so there's a quote from Ollie Shu, and he says, uh, there, are, there are too many, so he runs the sperm bank in Denmark. Cryos International Sperm Bank and he said there are too many redheads in relation to demand I do not think you choose a redhead unless the partner for example the sterile male has red hair or because the lone woman has a preference for redheads and that's perhaps not so many especially in the latter case um, <laughs> anyway it's obviously not fair because um, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with redheads just want to make that clear uh, as the QI view and it also he also stopped accepting Ollie Shu. Um, stopped accepting donations from a lot of Scandinavians as well because they um, export a lot of their sperm internationally and there's not... So people like to have children that what? kind of look like them. That's Wow, what a weird way of making your country bigger on the global map. 10% of their sperm go to Britain, in fact, and he just wraps them wow. up in a little package, sends them, you can receive it in the post, and then you can, like, you can all... It's all DIY. Order it online. Really? What? So yeah. it comes refrigerated or...? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, customs just sort of wave it through? I believe so. Wow. Yeah. Um, it so it's not over the liquids it? amount allotted. <laughs> I don't I, think so. I know something which is over the liquids amount, unfortunately. This was in 2011. There were lots of zoo officials trying to establish a sperm bank for elephants in North America because there aren't enough elephants and they're going to start becoming uh, too closely related to each other yeah. and weaken the gene pool. Um, so 16 litres of elephant semen uh, were being kept in South African export office because American import had no idea what to classify it as. There's a lot of bureaucracy in the USA. So it was just kept waiting there, frozen in limbo for ages. Mm. And I think it might still be there. (laughs) And that was three years ago. So there's 16 litres of semen waiting somewhere as part of Project Frozen Dumbo, is what they call it. (laughs) 
Shouldn't have declared. Should have just yeah. gone through customs. <laughs> gone through. <laughs> through. Was, no, over 100 mils, very tricky. You'd have to have a lot of tiny bottles of shampoo. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys think that 90% of your sperm is deformed? Yep. You three specifically. <laughs> yep. I'm told that all the time. Sort it out. What do you mean? Didn't know that. 90% of men's human men's sperm has like either two heads or two tails, or multiple heads and tails, or like a coiled tail or a broken tail. So you mean superheroes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, before. okay. Yeah. Superhuman. But yeah. a lot of these men actually get the clip so they can't have babies um, by a notorious villain known as Jack the Sniffer. <laughs> <laughs> He's killing the superheroes before they're born. <laughs> um, for me, when I hear the word redheads as an Australian, I immediately think of our matches. Because in Australia, oh, yeah. that's the leading brand of matches. Uh-huh. Right. They're called redheads. Redheads were originally made in Australia. But then they got um, they got outsourced to Sweden, and so they were no longer an Australian product. And we have a guy in Australia called Dick Smith, and he runs Dick Smith's Electronics, Dick Smith's Foods, and he's kind of Australia's Richard Branson. And um, he decided that he wasn't going to allow Redheads to become the leading brand of Australian matches. So he created his own brand, which you can buy in shops. I think you can still buy them, and they're called Dickheads. Because <laughs> um, Dick Smith, Dickheads, and Dickheads became Clever. a hugely popular product in Australia. Wow. That reminds me a little bit of. Do you know about Redhead Day in the Netherlands? Uh, it's a summer festival. It takes place each first weekend of September in the city of Breda. And um, all the redheads from around the world come along and have fun and party. Um, it's very popular. Uh, but for the first few years, it wasn't so popular because it clashed with a local pumpkin contest. Uh, but now it's, now Which it's... orange to choose? Is that what they're doing? <laughs> Why do redheads get such a hard time? I've never understood Neither this. Neither have I. No. I, think gra- I always wanted really to be good. redheaded. Yeah, me it means too. you're special. Yeah. The yeah. Irish like redheads. There's a high demand still for redheads good. amongst the Irish. Go Ireland. They're still asking for it. Mm. Yeah, Apparently that's... very popular in Germany as well. There was um, a sex researcher called Professor Dr. Werner Habermel. And he said, the sex lives of women with red hair is clearly more active than those with other hair colour, with more partners and having sex more often than the average. I find it quite interesting that um, the human sperm cell is the smallest cell in the human body. Um, and a lot of people know the, the, uh, the egg, the female egg, is one of the, just the largest, I think. But a blue whale sperm is only a very tiny amount longer than a human's one. Oh, which is interesting. Really? It's, so it's completely different by species. Yeah, it's totally the, random. I don't, yeah. I don't know. People, I don't think people know why. They certainly don't know why the fruit fly sperm are so big. And yeah, why yeah. have a small sperm or a big that's sperm? Several times as long as the actual fruit fly, isn't it? Twenty times. Twenty, 20 times, times as long. Although I couldn't work out, work this out. So the average male ejaculate is half a teaspoon. Um, and that's where the band. Gets that's where the band got its name from. Really? Really? I didn't oh. know that. Brackets. I haven't also heard of the band. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It contains 200 million sperm. If you lined up all the sperm in one ejaculate, it'd stretch six miles. So wow. you like, you managed to get your sperm into one line. It's six miles long. I don't. Maybe <laughs> yeah. If you ask them all to queue up in length, order yeah. from, like, you need a spatula or something. Largest. You with two heads to the back. <laughs> <laughs> The man who first discovered, <laughs> the man who first saw sperm under a microscope, who was called Van Leeuwenhoek, uh, so he discovered them in 1677. He was very clear whenever he wrote about it or spoke about it that the sperm that I found were not obtained <laughs> by any sinful contrivance on my part, but were the excess which nature provided me in conjugal relations. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I found is that it takes five people to get semen out of a vulture. <laughs> 
Right. Is that through first-hand experience? <laughs> I've got bad news for you, Andy. There's only four of us. <laughs> Damn it. What am I going to do with this guy? <laughs> um, no, one person takes the limbs, one takes the head, one takes the wings. A fourth person massages its back. So after the massage, the bird gets aroused, and then its uh, cloaca appears, which is like a, the sexual opening that most birds have. And then, So the fourth person then grabs the cloaca uh, between thumb and index finger, at which point the fifth person collects the semen in a glass funnel. Or receptacle of their choice. It doesn't, you know, doesn't matter. Once you've gone to that much effort, though, you may as well get a glass funnel. And that's the stag night over. <laughs> okay, uh, final fact of the show, and we head over to Andy Murray. My fact is that the English language has more words borrowed from Hawaiian than it has from Welsh. Oh, Which why, is surprising. Yeah, because it's quite a long way away, it's Hawaii. Very long way away, yeah. And, whereas <laughs> Wales is quite close. Almost next door. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so let me think. So maybe that is because um, things in Hawaii are more unusual to us. Uh, things that are in Wales, we just use the English words for, perhaps. Well, possibly, but there, there seems to be a, a theory that it's actually snobbery. That oh, it was really? it was Anglo-Saxon snobbery that uh, that repressed the Welsh language, and it was it was suppressed for a while, for a long time in the nineteenth yeah. century. Um, so this is a claim made by Dr. Philip Durkin, who's the author of uh, Borrowed Words, and he's also the deputy editor of the OED. So he knows his stuff, and he's ranked a lot of different languages in terms of how many words from them have ended up in the OED. Uh, and Latin comes first, and French comes second. Um, but Hawaiian uh, manages to beat Welsh. As does Turkish and Icelandic. Hawaiian words that we have include things like uh, hula hoop from hula, the hula Hula, dance, uh, ukulele, aloha, and wiki, which means quickly. So Wikipedia is is If you um, go to Hawaii, I've been to Hawaii, and if you get a bus from the airport to wherever you need to go, they're called wiki wiki buses because they're quick. There's a bunch of words that uh, I think someone recently wrote a book on words that the English language used to have that we should bring back, but the only one that springs to mind is fizzle, which used to mean in the 15th and 16th centuries, uh, it was a verb. It meant to break wind without making a noise, which we don't have anymore. But apparently, yeah, fizzle is where we get the word feisty from. Andy, you you actually have invented new words, haven't you? For you were one of the kind of silent authors of uh, the new meaning of the lift book, oh, Afterlift. Yeah, yeah. It was a book that, what was it, Andy? It's a book that... It's a book of things that there should be words for but aren't. So the original one was in um, the 80s, and it was one of the words, and that was abilene, which is the pleasant coolness on the other side of a pillow, which is lovely. There's no word for that on a hot night when you turn your pillow over. Ah, oh, it's so nice. So all the, all the words in it, all the definitions of pl- real place names from around the world matched with things that... Experiences that don't yet have a word to condense them exactly, into yeah. one. Exactly, yeah. So anagram, an amusing anagram you've come up with, which doesn't quite work, <laughs> for example... <laughs> Or Danby Whisk, which is the bit of kitchen equipment that uh, you don't know what it's for, but it always means that you can't quite shut the drawer properly <laughs> and you have to sort of jam it in. So that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. great. So, yeah. <laughs> going to the, the Welsh thing, there are, there are several thousand people in Patagonia, in Argentina, who are descended from the Welsh and speak Welsh and Spanish as their two main languages. There are nearly as many Welsh speakers there as there are in Wales. That's bizarre. Yeah. I really love it when... Um, language gets kind of preserved because you're in a isolated place i remember going to north carolina and being right on the coastline and obviously that's where some of the first people landed from a southwest coast 
and everyone there sp- spoke with kind of a really thick Devonshire accent. It's so weird. So you're in North Carolina and people are talking like this to you. Oh, wow. I'm not very good at that accent. <laughs> really I'll re-practice it. Um, Palmerston Island, I think, in the middle of the um, Pacific and they all speak with a Gloucestershire accent. Yeah, that's so cool. Everyone that's on brilliant. the island. Oh, really? Yeah. My favourite word is grockle, which is a Devon word, which means someone who's not from around here. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Very grockle. The Hawaiians have a word for that, actually. Um, haole. Uh, ha ole or something like that which means someone who's not from around there oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. From there are some um, other Hawaiian oh. words which we should probably borrow in a bit similar to what we do with um, afterlife these are quite cool words makahaka haka is someone with deep set eyeballs which is quite good <laughs> that's me yeah. I've got deep set eyeballs is it? oh yeah, yeah. Um, if, you're, if you're listening at home we can barely see Dan's eyes because yeah. they're just so far away <laughs> <laughs> there's another one it's ulaiya which means to live like a hermit because of disappointment. Wow. That's quite a good word. That's amazing. It's very specific as well. The fact that you need a word for that implies there are a lot of people living as hermits because of disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) They should meet up and not be hermits anymore. This is completely off topic, but do you know that thing about the hermits in like the first to the fourth century? It was a fashion for um, people who were religious to go and live in the desert as a hermit. It, a few people did it, and then it became more fashionable, and more fashionable, and more <laughs> fashionable still. And then you have all these writings of these hermits living in the desert going, I can't move for all these <laughs> other hermits. It's just totally hermit. Yeah. I, I read the other day that one of the things that people used to do to sort out their melancholy, this was the rich back in the day, is that they would hire a hermit to live on their grounds, and they would build a hermitage, and they would go and talk to that hermit, and then they would let the problem sit with the hermit, and the hermit would then just mull on them on their oh, behalf. Yeah. But sometimes, if you couldn't afford the hermit they would often just build the hermitage they would uh leave items in particular positions <laughs> so they look like the hermit was just he'd just gone out for a walk you were showing off to your rich friends oh i've got a hermit oh he must be out he at the must moment. be out Look, he's I'm out so socializing yeah he's gone out on the town you don't really need to do that because all you have to do is say oh he's a hermit he doesn't like to be disturbed yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's true i can't believe there was a theory that it might make you less melancholy to go and rearrange the furniture in your fake hermit's house it <laughs> sounds like i would walk out of that house and commit suicide immediately <laughs> what's my life become yeah. um, somebody from um, the University of Leicester School of English who was researching the hermit thing said that they would leave reading matter and glasses out a bit like leaving sherry out for Father Christmas so yeah so to look know, like he was there yeah. and yeah I think that's quite charming yeah yeah and then they'd pretend to turn the pages and like put a bookmark <laughs> on a new page bookmark a bit every day yeah <laughs> oh he's really got a long way with little Dorrit <laughs> Um, words that we do get, just going back to Welsh, because um, oh, yeah. we've gone so far off topic, but words that we do get from Welsh include flannel, flummery, corgi, and dad. Dad? Yeah. yeah. Oh. That's a pretty big hitter. But not yeah. mum. Uh, no, not mum. Isn't, isn't ma the universal word for mother as a result of it's pretty all universal. babies? But there is a place, and I think it's Georgia or Armenia, where the word for mother is dada. Yeah. Uh, it's one of very few places in the world. The corgi thing's quite interesting because it means that um, the correct plural of corgi is corgoon, because that's the way the Welsh <laughs> plurals are made. 
You have another thing about plurals. The one is um, that whenever I go to um, a sandwich shop, I get very annoyed if um, I ask for panini and they only give me one. <laughs> because panini is plural. And, it should be, and I always ask for a panino if I only want one of them. I'm going to be perpetually disappointed. Like the hermit. Such, oh my god. You never invite a QI elf to any kind of shop. You're just going to be pedantic as hell on everything. Actually, there's no such thing as a fish. Get out of my fish and chip shop. You're one of them QI elves, aren't you? <laughs> Do you know what the state fish of Hawaii is? No. Uh, no. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> it's the humu, humu, nuku, nuku, apu, a-a. <laughs> this is why we took from Hawaiian rather than from Welsh, because they've got so many vowels, and vowels are really easy to pronounce, aren't Ooh. they? The um, Hawaiian word huia-io-ia, uh, meaning certified, has the most consecutive vowels of any word in the current human speech. Wow. Just kind of sounds like they're drunk all the time, doesn't it? If you're just eliding too many vowels. It sounds a bit like they're Cornish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, we are, we are. <laughs> um, okay, we should wrap up. Just one final thing, Anna. One final thing. Yeah. Von etymology. The first known use of the word abracadabra uh, was from the third century. Seems kind of weird to me because you would have thought it was like a modern... I don't know, it sounds like such a weird modern concoction, but yeah. it was used in the third century by a doctor who prescribed it as an anti-malarial. It's one of the first proposed cures for ma- malaria. And to, you s- were... to say abracadabra? <laughs> you, actually, you actually have to wear it around your neck in an amulet. Yeah. But I like the idea of someone going to the doctors. It's like, oh, I'm feeling not very good. I think I've got <laughs> yeah. malaria. Oh, I've got the one thing for you. Abracadabra! <laughs> abracadabra! Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, I feel much better. Okay, that's it for our episode. That's all our facts. Thanks for listening to our show. If you want to get in touch with any of us about any of the things that we've said, you can reach us on our Twitter handles. James can be found on... At Eggshaped. Uh, Andy, you're on... At Andrew Hunter M. I'm on at Schreiberland. Anna is not on Twitter at the moment. Again, she <laughs> is still refraining from joining, but we will get her one day. In the meantime, she sets up our fantastic qi.com slash podcast page where we're going to have links and videos and photos of all the things that we've spoken about over the course of this episode. So if you go there and check it out, that'd be great. And we'll see you guys again uh, next week. So thanks for listening to No Such Thing as a Fish. Goodbye. You